welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. Welcome back. We're in season two. On this, our 18th episode, I'll be talking to Chris Sims, co-writer of X-Men 92, Radical Guardian Skater X, and Dracula the Unconquered, among other things, co-host of War Rocket Ajax, Movie Fighters, Sailor Business, and Xena Warrior Business, about classic Nintendo games, Joe Deaver's Lone Wolf Gamebook series, and movie adaptations. Along the way, we'll discuss video game rental etiquette, the name of the guy at the beginning of Triple X that gets shot at the Ramstein concert, and the heartbreak and tragedy of Castlevania II. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Quick editor's note before we get started, I used a new-to-me podcasting service called Zencaster to record this episode, and while it's exceptionally useful at splitting tracks and organizing meetups, and really all the American guests sound fantastic, but for some reason my signal from Sydney came out with a lot of noise, compression, and just sounding really kind of flat and lifeless, so if I sound a little bit worse than usual, that's why. Don't worry, I got it all sorted out for next episode. And with that, we join this conversation already in progress. Chris, well, for those who may not know you, why don't you say a little bit of who you are and what makes you, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake? That does sound like something Haley would say. I'm I'm Chris Sims. I am a writer by trade. I am probably best known right now for writing the just recently canceled X-Men 92 series for Marvel with my co-writer Chad Bowers, who's a my frequent collaborator and longtime partner. We've been writing together since 2008, 2007, 2008. We've been friends for 20 years. But like starting, I think I think this year, I will have been friends with Chad for like 20 years, which is amazing. That's the point where you start thinking of your friendship as a, a child. So if your writing partnership was a child, it would be in what, third grade? And if your friendship with a child, it would be just about ready to drink. Yeah, it could, it, it could, it could, it could drive. It could vote this year. <laughs> but we also wrote Downset Fight together, which is a graphic novel from Oni. We actually just announced have a Guardians of the Galaxy one shot coming out for the Monsters Unleashed crossover uh, in March. Oh wow! Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like it's going to be a Guardians of the Galaxy tie into a crossover that's out like right before there's a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. So we're pretty nice. excited about that. Synergy. We're also working on a couple other things, but but on my own, I am also the senior writer for Comics Alliance, which is a comics criticism and opinion site. Matt Wilson and I do podcasts, War Rocket Ajax and Movie Fighters, and I do an episode-by-episode Sailor Moon podcast called Sailor Business with Jordan D. White, who's also my editor at Marvel, and I do a Xena Warrior Princess episode-by-episode podcast with Allison Stock, who's an assistant editor at Marvel, but I don't work with her at Marvel, <laughs> so... <laughs> I think that's it. Oh, and I'm also like writing a choose your own adventure book right now. Uh, a choosable path kind of adventure. A choosable path adventure game book using the Twine <laughs> software. A Twine book, I guess I could call it. Excellent. And as as someone who attempted two episode by episode recap podcasts, I have no idea how you do. How you have so much time, man? Honestly. <laughs> 
<laughs> I tried it for Avatar The Last Airbender and because relationships are compromises, keeping up with the Kardashians. And both of those lasted about five episodes before we realized, okay, it takes three hours to recap a 22-minute episode and then turn that into a one-hour podcast. Jake Mason does the editing on Sailor Business and he has asked us, like he sent us a, like essentially a pleading email <laughs> this week that was like, guys, could you keep it under two hours, please? <laughs> Because, like, I got a full-time job, my dudes. And I'm like, yeah, that was on me. Because what happened is we were supposed to record a podcast at 10 a.m. And I woke up at 10.45. So I was out of I was out of sorts for episode 99, as you will hear. <laughs> yes, yeah, so everyone should go and check out, especially Xena Warrior Business, because it's just started. And it's fantastic. And I really enjoy it. And I think you will as well. So, Chris, now I know you live in, in North Carolina. You're very vocal about living in North Carolina and enjoying the, the fruits of Durham. Yes. So where did you grow up, though? I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up in a town called Sumter, uh, which is about 50 miles east of the state capital of Columbia. So I usually just tell people I'm from Columbia, unless I'm in the South, in which case I say I'm from Sumter. It's 50 miles east of Columbia. But it's a town that was built around an Air Force base, and there's not much else there. Uh, I think the best way to describe it is that it is a, a city that got its first Starbucks in late 2014. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And it was the, like, we got a Dunkin' Donuts about a year before that. So obviously the coffee desire was high. <laughs> As, as someone who spent some time in a town where there was uh, one Dunkin' Donuts and one Tim Hortons directly across the road from one another, yes, I appreciate that and the loyalty that's involved. Yeah. When Starbucks opened, like, the Dunkin' Donuts ran a promotion that, like, they had a sign that was, like, obviously, like, made in Microsoft Word and printed out and taped to their their door. It was like, <laughs> friends don't let friends drink Starbucks. Oh, shots fired. Buy one, get one free coffees. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so so growing up in uh, in Sumter, what sort of kid were you? I was basically <laughs> basically the same kind of kid as I am an adult, you know? I was I was very obsessive. I would obsess over things. Like I was an I was a Nintendo Power kid. Oh, okay. So I would read and obsess over video games that, that weren't out yet or that I would never play and I would or, or that were, you know, bad. Like I would I would read these these like Nintendo Power glowing promotional reviews of like Kickmaster <laughs> and then never find them at at the at the Blockbuster video, you know, the Sycamore video, uh, which was the local video <laughs> store. I was a reader. I've always been a, a reader. Um I used to be able to read I used to be able to read books very quickly. And that is something that is I, surprisingly like a skill that has gone away in my old age like I, I still enjoy reading and I still read fairly fast but I could knock out I don't know how I did it I could just knock out a novel in no time uh, and be on to the next one or like and I would reread books like I would I would read books over and over you know, I read the the novel The Princess Bride the movie is based mm -hmm. on yeah um, which, is, which for people who like that movie if you haven't read the novel like the like it's different enough to be very rewarding, but it's got everything you want because William Goldman wrote the novel and the screenplay. Like I read that novel like three times in a summer when I was a kid, you know, and it's it's a good sized bit of bit of pages. There, there's a very direct line from the kid that I was to the adult that I am, I think, in terms of, of obsessing over things. And obviously I was, you know, a clown. That's... That's pretty much that's pretty much how it was. So basically, you know, scouring Sycamore video for Fester's quest and you know, reading about, <laughs> reading about the Zoo of Death and probably plotting it out on graph paper. Yeah, the Zoo of Death is great, right? The Zoo of Death's amazing. It's, it's dark. It's dark as hell. It's super dark. Hey, hey man. Hey, hey, man. Here come the king bats. How about that? Oh, okay. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, let's introduce Humperdinck, you know, killing an orangutan. Yeah. <laughs> Just because. Just like casually, you know, sleeper holding it to death. Humperdinck, Humperdinck, who's built like a barrel and moves like a crab. Like, <laughs> seriously, read that Princess Bride novel if you haven't. It's very, very good. Or it was in the mid-90s when I read it. I read it in, I think, 2004. And yeah, still good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it holds up. And it has, and it, it's, it's brilliant. And I think one of the reasons that I went back to it so much is because it has that same metatextual framing sequence that the movie does because the the premise of you know the premise of the movie is that the story of wesley and buttercup and indigo and physic is being told by peter falk to fred savage as a as a story like he's reading a storybook to him peter falk best grandpa just saying best grandpa who i i truly <laughs> believe is in continuity with columbo <laughs> yes i truly believe princess pride is in columbo continuity because he acts just like columbo he even does a <laughs> there's just one more thing on that kid yeah, and when he stands up, he like pats the pockets, and it's the all right. Where was I? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's all those little mannerisms are the same. Yeah, because it's Peter Falk. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the book, the premise of the novel is that it's William Goldman annotating and abridging S. Morgenstern's original novel, *The Princess Bride*, that was read to him by his grandfather as a child, and realizing that the grandpa left stuff out. Yeah. Yes. The, the the brilliant thing is that book ends really dark and it gives you as a reader the option of being like, hey, where do you want to end this story? Where, where, do you, where do you think we need to end it? Like, where should I stop? And that like is, that's a technique and, and like a, a, a frame device for that novel that really sticks with you, I think. Because it, it's one of those books that makes you realize what stories can be. And how how different they can be, and and was probably one of the earliest examples that I had as a kid reading it of understanding the act of writing, and the act of editing, which is you know like a really really crucial thing for me to understand, obviously. Yeah, and I mean, and as as someone who's who's read your comics, it's like yeah, you you can see that like there, there it definitely does feed through into the work that you create. Yeah, it's it's one of like there's a there's a certain kind of cleverness that I think I've always been attracted to. Like whether I realize the cleverness in the moment or whether it comes later, like because you know you have that moment. It's it's the Batman sixty six moment that I always talk about, where when you're a kid, it doesn't matter that it's a parody. Like it, it, it's not funny when you're a kid. Like it's it's very very deadly serious. Because listen, listen to Adam West talk. He's very serious. Yeah. It's real to you as a kid in a way that as an adult, you can appreciate all the different layers to it. And I feel like that's, you know, a lot of the stuff that I was attracted to as a kid had that sort of element to it. Uh, at least in terms of like the books I read, the the TV shows I was obsessed with. The video games were all just like, you know, <laughs> they were they were Nintendo games. That's a nice segue. Let's step over into talking about Nintendo games. So what was, what was your primer? Where did you start? Oh man, this is like this is like the the Barbara Walters. We're gonna see if we can make you cry moment. Cause <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you, my parents got divorced when I was five. No, I mean it's fine. My parents got divorced when we were five, and I moved from my mom's hometown of of Ohio. You know, we we were from Ohio. We moved to this small town in South Carolina where there is basically nothing, and there's basically nothing now. So imagine what it's like in 1987. It's a whole different sepia toned nothing. Yeah. And we moved on my birthday. Oh, no. Yeah. So we moved to South Carolina oh, on my geez. birthday. So 
my birthday present when we got there was a Nintendo Entertainment System. And I remember the first night I had it, I remember waking up after I had gone to bed and it was like two o'clock in the morning and my mom was playing Super Mario Brothers and like (laughs) could not stop playing. So... So yeah, that's where it started with me and, and and video games. By the way, was your mom doing the move the controller to attempt to make Mario jump thing that my mom did? Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> like... and, and, you, and you know what, like I, like, I will catch myself doing that now. And I know how those things work, at least in theory. I think that was the entire basis. I think it was like one of, it was a terrible joke that was going around when the, when the Wii was being announced. They're like, oh, it's motion controlled. And the answer is, oh, good. So when you do that something will actually happen. Yeah. It will be the thing you want, but it'll actually make something happen. Yeah. You know, you know who loved the Wii? Old folks. Totally. Old folks loved the Nintendo Wii. I think because <laughs> like it it made it finally made sense. Yep. Uh, as someone who used to work near an electronics store that had the Wii demonstrator with the bowling, seeing the amount of like positioning and posing and like actual physical movement that would be involved in Wii bowling when older people would do it was just astonishing to see well you gotta treat it like it's real right like what's the, what's the point if you're not gonna pretend like it's real yeah it's like just people i remember uh, seeing a podcast where people were talking about oh the Wii balance board and you would try and see all right what's the minimum amount of movement i could do to make it register and all you do is screw yourself up it's like <laughs> if you just move naturally it's the only way to make it work yeah yeah exactly starting off straight away with mario so were you from there where was your next step This is a thing that's difficult to explain to the young people uh, these days, which is that there was a time when, especially if you were living in a small town, that Friday was the day you went and rented movies. Yes. So my mom was a teacher. I would get out of school at like three. My mom would get out like 3.34. And then it would just be, can I convince her to take me to Sycamore? Or like, if I'm really lucky, can I convince her to take me to Blockbuster before there's nothing left? Like, cause if we, cause if we don't go right then, then when everybody else gets out of work at five and when the teenager, like when the, the high school kids get out of school at three 30, then they're hitting up the video store and we'll have to rent. Jeez. What was a movie that I watched a million times when I was a kid? Uh, the blues brothers probably like, we'll have to, we'll just have to rent the blues brothers again. You know, I'm, I'm not in my head yet. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was, our family was not a, a generally speaking, like a video game buying family. Like we were, we were, we were renters. And this was an era when you could like rent a VCR, which like seems mega crazy to me now, but that's, you know, that's what you would do. You would go put down your $200 deposit and rent a, rent a VCR. <laughs> Just in case you walked out with it. Yeah. Or rent a, rent a Nintendo. You could rent a Nintendo. And then you would like select what you were doing that weekend. And, and that was the, like, like nowadays, if you get a bad game, like you, you've gotten a bad game and you're out 60 bucks or whatever, and that sucks. But like, I remember being so mad at bad video games because it represented time. Yeah. Like if you got a bad video game rental, then you lost your weekend because it was the thing you had to do that weekend. It was the, you know, it was, it was all like, it was your plan for the weekend. <laughs> was playing Wizards and Warriors. Yeah, I I have a very specific story, which I think I've actually told on the podcast, of renting the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves NES game at my dad's house and attempting to play that for one evening and not knowing what an RPG was and how it was like this broken, (laughs) weird RPG. And yeah, there's that feeling of, oh God, I had one chance this weekend. I had one chance to to get my hands on a game that I couldn't have any other way. Yeah. And I chose this one. Oh, that's the worst. 
Do you have any any particular memories like that? Like Wizards of Warriors actually was one because my sister had a friend who was like really good at it because it was like you know everybody had the game they owned unless you were rich and, and I have like I, I have admitted to this in like columns before like yeah I I made I made some very convenient friends uh, and that's <laughs> that's on me but you know you you did what you had to do. But my, my sister had a friend, and her, like, the game they had was Wizards of Moyer. So I remember, like, I got it one time because I had seen her play it when, like, we had gone over to her house. And just, like, the frustration like, that I couldn't make it, like, I couldn't make it do anything I wanted it to do. <laughs> and that and the game uh, Taboo the Sixth, the Sixth Sense, which is, like, a fortune-telling app, essentially. Not actually <laughs> a game. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, okay. like, a weird... Like, look it up. It's a, it's, it's commonly like you will find it on plenty of lists of like the worst NES games ever because it's not a game. Like it's like, it's like a fortune telling app. Terrible. I think my sister had the cover of this game as like a poster on her wall in her kitchen. Yeah. It was some (laughs) budget ass imagery to be honest. Those are the ones I can really remember like getting and just being like, like, ugh, they got me again. Like Nintendo powers lies got me again. Because even when I would get something that, like I'd seen in Nintendo Power and it wasn't it wasn't a game I was good at and it wasn't a game like I was like understood like something like Star Tropics is mm. interesting enough where you think the problem is with you, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously the big one, the one that I've I've gone on and on and on about because I've been writing every day on the internet for eleven years, twelve years as of today. Congratulations. Uh, this is the anniversary of me starting my blog today, is uh, Castlevania 2, which was infuriating to me as a child and <laughs> in a way that sticks with me as an adult. Yeah, I was going to say, with the, the Castlevania ones, I think, like you said, there's that frustration angle where, you know, you're playing with a whip, not with a sword, and there's a, Simon has a particular way of jumping, and I think that frustration stopped me. I think I tried to play it one weekend, and I remember just not getting very far, and the game went back, and I... And, Whenever I'd see there'd be a new Castlevania game, I'm like, all right, it's that that series that I don't play. And not with any malice, just that I remember playing it and going, oh, that wasn't fun, but other people like it. Well, Castlevania 1 is, like, like I was one of those kids, um, where did, where did you grow up? I grew up all over Canada. Okay. Yeah, and I was born in 82, so I think we're nearly the same age. Yeah. Did, like, in your school libraries, do you remember the, like, orange and black, like, monster books? Like, the, the, they had, like, books about, like, werewolves, books about Dracula, like... And they were all in the same series, and they all kind of, like, used the Universal Monsters, which, like, may have been in public domain at that point, like, as their covers. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because I've talked to a lot of people who recognize these. Yeah, it was almost... I almost they, I almost remember them as being almost like a Time Life book. Like, he would say, oh, you'd buy yeah. one, and then you get the set. Exactly. But for, like, babies who were obsessed <laughs> with Dracula. So I, you know, I was obsessed with those, and I was really obsessed with Dracula as a kid. Obviously, that's something that's carried over to my adult life. You know, like, Castlevania... Like, Castlevania, the whole point of the game is that it's like you're fighting your way through all the monster movies. Like, you fight Frankenstein, you fight the mummy, you fight Medusa because, like, because of Clash of the Titans. Which I don't know if that's a a connection a lot of people... Nobody ever talks about it, so I don't know if it's one of those things that, like, everybody just knows. Or if I am, like, I'm the one guy who figured out how Castlevania works. 
<laughs> which now that I say it, I think I know which one is more likely. But like, it's a big, it's a big monster movie tribute. Castlevania One, I was like mega obsessed with, but I could understand even as a kid that it was a hard game because I, because when you play Mario Brothers, which is the game that everybody owned because it came with a system, Mario Brothers teaches you the language of video games, the language of Nintendo games, at least. Which is why I firmly believe that like every console Nintendo sells should have Mario Brothers on it for free because a they've made their money on it and b it is a valuable teaching tool oh okay you understand that like world one one is easier than world six one seven one eight one eight two eight three eight four like you understand like what makes it more difficult like the jumps are harder there's more enemies and so playing castlevania i understood that castlevania was hard because castlevania like has the same ramp but it's a much steeper ramp and it's a much more much less forgiving ramp even though you can like even though you have a life bar instead of being able to take one hit like you need precision jumps the enemy patterns are tougher to get around and there's medusa heads which are the worst but but like i could never like i've never been able to like master the patterns you know like i i love Mega Man games but i'm terrible at them like in practice like i i'm bad at like responding to the boss's pattern unless it's something very very simple like that's why i love Mega Man because if you get the right weapon you don't need to learn the pattern that's your reward <laughs> but yeah. castlevania 2 was like a, it was a weird proto rpg and the thing is like they clearly wanted with castlevania 2 to make the kind of games that they would that would eventually define the series the, the metroidvania games like the symphony of the night era games the igarashi games they wanted to make those with castlevania 2 but they didn't know how and they like the technology wasn't there and they fucked it up at every opportunity <laughs> <laughs> and so i remember like because i didn't understand rpgs like i didn't even understand pen and paper rpgs like that wasn't something that i i got into until my 20s like i had no concept of what this game was trying to do except that it looks like the, like the Mario Brothers genre of games. It looks like a mm. platformer. It plays like a platformer until it doesn't. And it was like, it was like it was dropping into a different language every other sentence and expecting me to keep up. And I hated it. And I was so <laughs> gratified that like when I, when I became an adult that like even the critical re-examination of Castlevania 2 was like, no, 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 no. It's still a bad game. <laughs> like it's still, it's, it's like, their their ambition extended its grasp like god bless them for keeping on it because you know symphony of the night is obviously a masterpiece and i love there there was a while there i actually did it last year but like when october would roll around i would just play through all the egovania games they're really good and really rewarding and really fun if you like dracula and grinding for levels which fortunately i do but man i remember being mad at castlevania 2 like just because i had because i had the strategy guide i had the nintendo power book that you got if you re-upped your subscription they sent you a book and it had the three mario games it had the three castlevania games it had like star tropics in there and it was screen by screen guides and i had that and i still couldn't get it <laughs> and it made me like i at a certain point it's just like like i can remember God, this is going back. I had for a little while a TurboGrafx 16, and I remember playing Keith Courage in Alpha Zones, which was this weird, like, robot platformer thing where you had a sword, and, and it was a strange game. And I remember, yeah, similar to you, I got a strategy guide that was, oh, here's how you beat, here's like, you know, walkthroughs on all these games. And I got to a certain boss, and it just said, good luck. 
And I'm like, no, no, you are breaking the social contract of this book. You're supposed to tell me how to beat this thing. Good luck is not an answer. Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't expect me to use all the skills that I've learned in the previous levels because you told me all the secrets. I didn't need the skills. Yes. The only skill I've developed is reading. My skill at reading has increased by one point. <laughs> yeah, which I think, I think that was like the magic of being like a, a, like a kid who loved books, right? Is that you would get these, you would get a book every month about Nintendo games. You know, I've gone back, like, they, they were briefly uploaded to the Internet Archive, so I genuinely thought they had fallen into the public domain. Like, I even wrote, like, a piece on Comics Alliance about them. Because the Internet Archive is, is generally, like, you know, it's, it's public domain stuff. Yeah. And I remember somebody uploaded, like, 10 years worth of Nintendo Power. So I was going back through the ones from, like, 1993, 1992. It was shocking how much I remembered word for word. <laughs> I remember, like, I remember they, they had a, like, it was called Bob and Rob, Robin Don? No, Robin Don are the, the mutants. Bob and George, <laughs> maybe? It no, was Bob, Bob and George was a Mega Man-based comic. Yeah, I remember that. Ooh, that's old internet deep cuts. But they had this column. Maybe it was Robin Don. But they had this column where these two guys would like, let's just call it Matt Wilson and Chris Sims, would <laughs> do like a point counterpoint on like recent video game releases. And I remember like, I specifically remember them talking about the the Blues Brothers game, which should never have come out. It was like 1992. Oh my God. No. <laughs> Why? Why? And they made a big deal about not understanding why the level was called Stairway to Heaven. And they were like, are they like the line? And you can you can go look it up. The line is, are they trying to see their dead relatives? Are they spiritualists? And like, I wanted to be like, no, dudes, it's a song. <laughs> and also, to be fair, you know, Jake and, Jake and Elwood were very spiritual to a given value of spiritual. They were on a mission from God. And it was Robin George. Robin George. George. I was so close. Yeah. I was so close. Robin Don or Robin George. And now I'm just like brainstorming ideas for a Blues Brothers video game. It's like, here's where you snake a gig booking out from a country band. <laughs> yeah. You know, here's where you threaten to blackmail your booking agent. Big, 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 big problem with that game. Donald Duck Dunn was not in it. <laughs> that's a that's a very funny Blues Brothers reference. Uh, I assure yeah. you, everyone out there who's not laughing. As someone who spent that day when he died trying to explain to people why it was a big deal, and they're like, so Donald Duck died. No, no, no. He no. had a pipe, and he, he had a band powerful enough to turn goat piss into gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, I did actually just go to Chicago for the very first time two months ago, and <laughs> I may have been just a horrible person, just like being like, all right, this will be a Ferris Bueller reference. This will be a Blues Brothers reference. And, oh, what was it? There was something else. But yeah, it's like, I remember just like walking around and, and being like, oh, that's where they got that Picasso. And people looking at me and <laughs> what? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually get to go. I wanted to take a picture in front of 1060 West Addison, but Wrigleyville is a long way from where we were staying in Logan Square. So, and apparently yeah. it's full of bros. That's what I hear. That's what they tell me. If you want to keep talking about video games, I can do that. I can keep talking about NES games. Well, here's the thing, is that you did put something on... Because initially when I sent you the email, I'm like, okay, give me some ideas of umbrella topics. You put down only one that I'd never heard of. Now, you did put down Bruce Coville, and I talked to my teacher in An Alien with Al Collins, and you put down DuckTales, and I talked to Annie about DuckTales a bit. But you wrote down Joe Dever's Lone Wolf books, which I have never heard of. Well, that's weird, because I know you read my columns, and I wrote a column about one last year. Well, there you go. I must have missed that one. But please, explain to the listeners 
what these lone wolf books are. Joe Deaver has been on my mind a lot lately because he he's one of the the people who was very important to me that died in 2016. And he was a game designer who wrote a series of choosable path game book novels that are directly informing the thing that I'm trying to do now and that I've been working on since November. And he actually died at a relatively young age. I think he was, I think he was like 60 while like right after I started working on this one. And that's one of the things that's kind of, you know, it's been difficult to kind of go back to that stuff. They were called Lone Wolf. The, the series of novels was Lone Wolf, and they were basically D&D adventures you could play by yourself if you were a, a, a lonely and friendless child, which so many of us were. See, I was literally just talking about this with a friend of mine, because I remember getting a book, uh, which I only found, like, literally two days ago. Because I remember thinking, like, I had imagined it, but it was exactly like that, where it had the character sheet in the front, and depending on how you had played, you would have X number of hit points, you would have X items, and that would help determine what choices you could take later. And it was, but then I looked it up, but I forgot that the series was actually called Virtual Reality. (laughs) It was by Mark Smith. Uh, It's called Virtual Reality Green Blood, and all I remember is you had to fight an elf, but if you actually killed the elf in the duel, the rest of the tribe would kill you, no matter whether you chose to fight with magic or swords or whatever, and I thought that was a bit of a cop-out. Well, there there were a bunch of them, because, um, I mean, like, the 80s were, like, weirdly, like, the time, uh, like, the 80s and early 90s, of choose-your-own-adventure books that, that we've kind of seen a resurgence of since people realized, like, oh, it's super easy to, like, read these on your phone and or, or use hyperlinks as web pages, or, you know, if you're Ryan North, you know, to write a, a series of books that reimagine Shakespeare as choose your own adventures. The the Joe Deaver ones, they were they were very, very D D. And in fact, like he was a he was a Dungeons and Dragons world champion. And I oh tried to look up what that meant, because I have been I have I've been playing D D since I was twenty. So the so fourteen years. I worked in a comic book store that was also a game store. I still do not know how you determine who wins. <laughs> like, I don't know what you have to do to be a champion. And so I looked it up and it was like, it was described on Wikipedia as a contest with vague and ill-defined rules. Excellent. Uh, so he was he was like a champion D&D guy. And he had this series of books that were, they were full on RPGs. Because you had an inventory system, you had a character sheets, there was a combat system, there were maps of this setting, the last lands. You were a, a warrior, but you also could have different magical powers depending on which ones you picked at the start of the adventure. And there was progression because each novel you finish, your reward for finishing a novel is that you get to select a new power. And your inventory carries over. Uh, in fact, oh, wow. like like one of the biggest quote-unquote problems with the game is that they they needed to be written so that each one could be somebody's first. So that, like, you could make it through if you started with book four or whatever. But I think it's, like, in book two or book three, the quest that you're on is to recover this sword. And the sword, because everything has to be made with the people who don't have the sword in mind, the sword is game-breakingly powerful. Like, you bestride <laughs> the earth like a mighty colossus when you have this thing. <laughs> It's like you're choosing a random number from 1 to 10 on a table upon which it is very easy to cheat. Like, so you're essentially rolling like a, a, a d10. But this sword gives you, against like the hardest enemies in the game, the sword gives you a plus 10. Oh my. So it's okay. like, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but they were like, I think a lot of kids, like you're, you, you have that time when you're into like knights and fantasy and, and 
horses and swords and wizards and Tolkien and mm-hmm. all that nonsense. And so these were like these were more formative for me than Tolkien was in in, wow. in those terms. Like and like there was there's a, a long series and like you become like because you're the like the first thing that happens in the book is that everybody else at your monastery gets killed. You're the last one. You were <laughs> Silent Wolf. Now you're Lone Wolf, and that's fucking oh badass. <laughs> That's that amazing. is badass as hell. Uh, and then so you're the only one who can claim the summer sword, uh, which is because <laughs> the ancient word for sword is sword with an E. And so you're the only one who can stand against the Dark Lords of the Dracarium. And I only had two of the books. I only had two of them when I was a kid. I had like book two. I had I had Shadows on the Sand, which was I think I think I had Flight from the Dark, which was the first one, and I had Shadows on the Sand, which I think is the fifth, the fifth one. And I would always try and look for them, and I could I could always I always had to like I'm the kind of reader like I don't break the spines on my books, mm-hmm. like so I couldn't obviously like write on the character sheet inside it, like I had to like copy everything down onto a notebook by hand. The super cool thing about these, and I should say, Deaver also wrote, I think all told there's maybe 20 of these in that series. Plus there's World of Lone Wolf, which is like five books about Star the wizard. And then he also wrote one called Freeway Warrior, which is post-apocalyptic. Oh my God. And is set in Texas. <laughs> and you have never seen a British dude write Texas until you have read Freeway Warrior, uh, where where you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior. But the reason the reason I know about all of those is that in 1999, a bunch of Lone Wolf fans asked Joe Deaver. They were like, "Hey, the books are out of print. A lot of people can't get them. Like, we're super huge fans. Can we put them online as web pages? That like format them for HTML." Like, make, like, little die rollers and everything. Reprint your books that that are essentially, like, his life's work, honestly. Like, can we put those online for free for anybody who wants to read them? We don't want to make money off of it, but, like, you know, we'll take donations, keep the site running and whatever. And we'll digitize all the books and and do them as HTML. And Joe Deaver said, yes. Excellent. Best kind of creator. He wrote a, (laughs) you can see it, it's it's Project Aon, projectaon.org is the site. And, like, they have the quote, like, from him, which is, like, suitably so D&D, dude. I love it. Because he's like, it would please me greatly if this were seen as my millennium gift to the fans <laughs> who stood by Lone Wolf for Summerlund and the Kai. And, like, but he did it. Like, and so all those are on there. And and I thought that was, like, as a kid, I loved those books for what they were. And as an adult, I was like, that's the coolest thing a creator can do for his fans is to be like, yes. Uh, and so like the good thing about that is that I think it actually worked in terms of like spreading awareness. Cause like fans like me were able to find them and like complete the series, but like those books got new printings. They got, you, you can get them like download them as apps now. Oh, cool. He did like lone wolf source books for like pen and paper RPGs, you know, unfortunately just recently passed away. And I'm glad that I actually got to write, like I, I wrote, I think last December, maybe last January about how much I loved them as a kid and how I love them as an adult still. And I'm glad that I didn't have to write that as a eulogy. I'm glad that I, I wrote that while he was still alive. And you can get them online and read them and they're so fucking fun and so like broken and weird. 
<laughs> like, they're uh, they're great. I love them. See, that's a, that's really nice. I was gonna say you uh, rarely do you hear of oh I went looking for this thing this like little known series from my childhood and that story ends well. So that's really nice. Yeah. Well, apparently <laughs> they were like really really popular in England, and, and I should like I don't know I don't know anyone in the UK who's like my age like obviously I know Kieran Chiak who also writes for Comics Alliance and is a good friend of mine but he's you know 25 26 or 24 mm-hmm. maybe so he's much younger than me so I don't think he would have grown up with them in the way that I did but there was like a fan club and and you can like go on the site and they have all like the old fan club material is up there it's oh, a wow. very thorough archive and I mean getting back to what we were talking about earlier which is going to make you include that in the podcast. It's an archive of this incredibly... This thing that would have been easily disposable. Yeah. This thing that, like, if people hadn't been interested enough in it, like, all that fan club stuff would have gone away, you know? It would have been discarded and and forgotten, and people would be satisfied if you just had the books, the text of Mm -hmm. the books. But they've got, like, the maps, the fan club stuff, and it's all the ephemera. Uh, that surrounds a thing which is stuff that I am like I don't necessarily want it in my house but I want it preserved (laughs) (laughs) as as someone who had a an official G.I. Joe fan club membership card in my wallet until I was about 14 yes all those things are are just like they're like these flies trapped in amber yeah where it's like only in that moment could that thing exist the Lone Wolf books have that weird connection to that 80s 90s like late 80s early 90s british role-playing game scene that brought you like hero quest making it over to america which was another thing that i was obsessed with in my youth do do you know about hero quest the board game yeah i remember seeing the commercials for it but i didn't have that i had oh god it was something else it was just basically risk with similar things yeah tell me about hero quest hero quest rules it's it's (laughs) it's the it's the midpoint between D&D and board games because you have a board that is divided into like dungeon rooms and then you the whoever's going to play Zargon the evil sorcerer is the dungeon master he is responsible for putting down the monsters arranging the board because you cut off parts of the board I mean you block off parts of the board you don't cut the board it's not a a (laughs) pandemic legacy situation (laughs) but you like arrange the board and you have like miniatures and you have like cardboard and plastic representations of furniture so you have treasure chests that actually go on the board you have torture racks and bookshelves and alchemist tables and tombs and everything and I was obsessed with it and you know I had it when I was a kid but again I was a sad and lonely child so I had no one to play with and I bought it as an adult too but like it's something that should so obviously be available online right now you should be able to go to heroquest.com and play it or or play it in roll 20 and and I know there have been attempts but none of them work and all of them are like fan-made and unofficial whereas I think there's no reason it's not on your iPad I don't understand it (laughs) but it's like but that was made like that and Lone Wolf coming to America feel like part of the same, the product of the same era in the way that like Hero Quest was published in America by Milton Bradley, but all the stuff was actually made by Games Workshop. So it's kind of this weird Warhammer spinoff. Okay. Like there's like Chaos Knights and stuff in it. Like the, and the Warhammer stuff to me, like which I again became familiar with working at the store, seems very like of the 2000 AD aesthetic where like there's fucking skulls on everything. And it's this weird world. Like it's this weird parallel nerd universe that I'm that I'm fascinated by because I was only tangentially a part of it in the in the eighties and nineties. Wow. 
See, uh, I just looked it up and it was Battle Masters was the thing I had, which was something else entirely. But Hero Quest sounds better. Yeah, I mean, look, if you if you can scrape together a hundred bucks, you can pick it up on eBay. But but you know what? Battle Masters is from the makers of Hero Quest. There you go. It was also published by Milton Bradley. So there you go. But that's that's some miniatures gaming right there. All right, Chris. Well, I am mindful of the time, so I think we can start wrapping up now. If people wanted oh, to find I, your I stuff on the internet, I want to talk about more. There's so much more. You know what? For you, let's extend it. What's it, what's your next one? <laughs> All right, let me think about Super Mario Brothers three. All right, roll for initiative. Let's go. Very obscure game. It featured in a little movie called The Wizard. <laughs> Is there anything that you don't like that that you that, that we talked about before that you want to bring up that we haven't had time for? Because I'll like I'm I'm good. <laughs> no, I was just looking at your list and I'm like, you're right. There was about another dozen things we could talk about. But I wanted to actually, no, I will. I do have something that we can finish up on. And this is something that I've, I've been thinking about since I first started listening to War Rocket Ajax and listened to some of your episodes from, I think it was about two years ago when I started listening. I want to talk about movie novelizations and comics of movies. Yes, please. Let's talk. Like, that's another thing I was super obsessed with as a kid was like, I remember going into a bookstore at like 10 or 11 and going to the counter and messing like this is this is my mind at work. I remember messing up the word adaptation and asking the lady for adaptions <laughs> and her giving me a look like she didn't understand what I was saying and me feeling like an idiot and then like finally finding where the movie adaptations were. For me it was it was movies that I was probably not going to see because they were either so short run. I was at the like Thinking of the times I am, I was either thinking in the suburbs of Vancouver or in a town called Fredericton in New Brunswick, which, again, not terrible amount of media that would be coming in to these places. So, for example, I had the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade first and last issue. So I got to see the whole adventure where he was River Phoenix and then had to fight on the boat right up to the point where he found out his father was missing. And then the tank chase and the Holy Grail stuff. And so, and I remember it had, it had an ad for The Adventures of Bayou Billy on the back, which I'm very glad I did not rent, having read about it since. Oh, you can you can drive, you can platform, and you can zap in that one. <laughs> and all the weapons. Remember, it was, an, it was a diagram of all the weapons, like a flat lie, if we're talking Instagram language. And then it was also stuff like, I had the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom novelization, which had blue foil edging on the pages. And it had an entire adventure that Short Round got to have before he was in the car for Indy to fall through the ceiling. Like he gets to like sneak into a movie and like catch a fish and steal someone's wallet and like get into a scrape and have to run away. And hey, when you're 12, that's the shit. That's everything you want to hear. <laughs> it was also a way for me to look at movies that I thought were too scary for me. It was like I would look at the Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula novelization, which there's a mouthful. And I remember because it had the pictures in the middle that had the pictures from the film. And I would look at the pictures and they were too scary for me. <laughs> and so I would, instead of reading Dracula, I would read the novelization of a movie about Dracula and then like steal myself to like flip past the photos before I got scared. Was it like... Did they not just, like, reprint Dracula and put, like, Gary Oldman on the cover? Oh, no. Like, was it a full-on, like, it was adaptation of, of the Coppola movie? So it opens so it opens with Dracula stabbing a church. <laughs> yes. Wearing weird, like, polymer muscle armor. <laughs> See, what you what you should get is the, the comics adaptation of a Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is another one of those ones that I have in the, in the closet, in, in the long boxes, because it was... It's a movie adaptation 
published by Topps Comics, which no longer exists, so it's never gonna get reprinted. And that shit's that shit's drawn by Mike Mignola. I was saying it's Mike Mignola, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's Roy Thomas and Mike Mignola, which is a super weird team. But it's Mike Mignola drawing an adaptation of Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I would, I, I loved like movie adaptations. Like I remember, like I don't remember anything about it, but I remember like having a sick day and reading in one one day. Like I, I, I had like I think I might have had like strep throat or something because I was out of school for uh, for a little bit. But it, I remember in one day I read the novelization of Hook. And I read the novelization of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, the Christy Swanson movie. Uh And, and, you know, like Princess, that's kind of how I came to Princess Bride, too, because I was kind of obsessed with the idea that you could. And this is a thing that, again, I think young people today, it's, it's a weird product of an inconvenience. And now that the inconvenience doesn't really exist anymore, the solution for it doesn't exist anymore, too. Like, I don't like I honestly don't know if movie adaptations are still a thing. I can say having worked in a Borders and having borrowed the the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie adaptation, they do still happen. Oh, well, look, I got I got the adaptation of Triple X from a friend as a Christmas present. And I was fucking stoked. But like there used to be a time when when you would see a movie and then that was it. Like you couldn't watch it over and over. Mm-hmm. Like because you either like didn't own it or like you know in the extreme you know before the rise of home video. But like we're talking about the eighties and nineties. Like home video was still a thing. But like VHS tapes were expensive. Like unless you taped it off TV, like you weren't gonna get to watch it again. And the movies you had to watch, you would watch over and over. Like I yep. watched Animal House so much. Like it fucked me up so bad because i had animal house and i watched it a million times and no wonder like i have trouble dealing with people as someone who watched kickboxer until that tape died i feel you yeah like karate kid like like you know army of darkness even for for Mm -hmm. me was a was a big one no no wonder i couldn't no wonder i was so angry in my teens by the way, just saying, uh, the Australian Blu-ray release of Army of Darkness had that original director's cut ending and no S-Mart ending, and I bought it, and I like my girlfriend was coming over, and I'm like, I'm making nachos, and we're watching Army of Darkness. This is going to be a good night. And the visceral anger I felt when, at the end of the movie, it switched over to the, oh no, I slept too long ending, and I'm like, wait a minute, what... He's supposed to say, lady, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the store. What? What's happening? And I just got mad, and she had never seen it before, so she's like, oh, okay, well, that was a funny way to end it. I'm like, no, it's the wrong way to end it. It's so wrong. <laughs> Luckily, I managed to find a uh, an import that had the original ending on it, and it made me very happy. <laughs> but, yeah, like, so VHS tapes were expensive. If you wanted to kind of relive that movie, or you wanted to get the story of that movie, and you'd miss that movie in theaters... You could go buy the novelization of Batman Forever, which I had, which I had, again, distinct memories of reading during standardized testing in seventh grade. <laughs> uh, you could go get the adaptation of uh, of The Shadow, which I also had, which re-added the, like, in the novelization of Alec Baldwin's The Shadow, they, they kept the Kent Allard stuff. <laughs> so he was Kent Allard pretending to be Lamont Cranston. <laughs> Pretending to be Yinko. You know, you could get those for like four bucks. And, and you know, God, you get them from Scholastic. Oh, I love, I love a Scholastic. 
If you can go back, you'll hear a. I think it's the second episode we did was about scholastic uh, book orders and book fairs. Uh, so many memories. We haven't even talked about Garfield. We could go into the Garfield scholastic stuff if you've got the stomach oh, for God. it. But we can stay on on the God. movie adaptations if you want. <laughs> yeah, let's. I mean, look, I've probably talked about it a lot on Ajax, but let's talk about the time where I was cutting Garfield strips out of out of the newspaper and keeping them in a Manila folder because I went through that phase that everyone has where they're obsessed with Garfield and some of us grow out of it, some of us don't, some of us think we grow out of it, and then we find out that we're in the same state as the like fifteenth annual Garfield convention. Oh, I and can't believe you guys are going, going to that. that <laughs> Yeah, it's like I, I would I had the newer ones and I would go over to my babysitter's house and not only would I read her babysitter's club books and therefore become a parody of myself, I would also mm-hmm. read the old Garfield collections where he was funny looking and just like marvel at the differences. And yeah, that it, it's like hearing you guys interview Chip Zdarsky and just the the depths to which a Garfield fascination can go. Kind of puts all that into context. Yeah. <laughs> but no, co- coming back to the movie adaptations, if you like, I, we kind of tangented yeah. there no, for a second. Like, they're because they're so weird, right? Because comics movie adaptations. This is something that I've talked to Tom Scioli about before, and it's especially relevant now because he's got that. He's doing the comics adaptation of the GI Joe versus Transformers or Transformers versus GI Joe movie that's based on his thirteen issue Transformers versus GI Joe comic. His fever dream of a comic. <laughs> Yeah, so he's doing the movie adaptation, which is just going to be one issue. The movie does not exist. Oh my god. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. And I've had conversations with him before because that's the stuff that he looks for at cons. Like when he's going through back issues, he looks for movie adaptations because he finds them. And I've gotten them for the same reason. Like I have For Your Eyes Only sitting on my desk here, which again is crazy to think about like a six-year-old buying the adaptation of For Your Eyes Only from a (laughs) Super America convenience store. Anyway... I'm like three rails off track right now, but he, he's fascinated by the way that they take a two hour movie or a 90 minute movie and you have to compress it. You have to make sure that it fits in 48 pages of comics Mm. or, or maybe like 64. If you've really got, like, if you've really got the space, you can get it in the 64 pages. But you still have to, like, compress it and arrange it weird. And there's things that, like, you're working from a script instead of working from the film. It's weird what gets in and what doesn't. And, you know, like, I had the Rocketeer adaptation when I was a kid, which is by, like, Peter David and Russ Heath, which is crazy. Because <laughs> yeah. they could have just gotten Dave Stevens. To, to, I mean, I'm sure Dave Stevens was taking, like, three years. Like, it's got a Dave Stevens cover. Like, that movie's based on comics. <laughs> but... <laughs> So that's the problem that comics movie adaptations have. And it's really, really fascinating because as a writer, my experience with comics has been like, I, you know, we never get to page 19 and we're like, oh, good. We've got an extra page. We can go back and, and put them there. It's always we're on page 20 and we're like, OK, well, we need two more like if we're <laughs> going to fit everything in. So we've got to go back and restructure stuff and cut and rearrange and fit. And maybe the splash page becomes a half splash. Maybe this double page spread becomes a single page. Like, we literally had to do that. We misnumbered the script in it for an issue of X-Men 92, and we literally had to take, like, a double-page spread where we'd had, like, eight panels and, like, make it work as a single page with six. Oh, wow. Because we had, like, we had two page 14s, unfortunately. <laughs> but with novels, you have this weirdly opposite problem, which is that you can 
you have so much more room because you're not just doing like the script because like nobody wants to sit down and like actually read a a screenplay and if they do they can get the screenplay you know if you want to read the screenplay you can maybe go get those but the the novelization has to be a novel it has to be prose and so all of that prose is filled up with additional detail all the detail that would have been stripped out stripped out for the movie is in the novel like characters motivations internal monologues like like people having secret names that never come up entire scenes that are cut out from the shooting script those wind up in the novel yeah specifically i I find it's often those little side characters like you know guy at the convenience store that has two lines before the action sequence he gets three pages explaining who he is and why he's there and what his name is and it's like oh like i had the terminator novelization and not only do the three punks including bill paxton get an entire like lead up on their story like the gun the gun store owner who gets shot like uh, everyone gets their own little story because it's like clearly they were running a bit thin because after writing this many action sequences there's not a ton of dialogue in that movie fucking Biggs Darklighter you know (laughs) yeah like that's how people knew who Biggs was before the the internet like because he's in he's in the novelization he's in the Star Wars novelization Hmm. fucking Alan Dean Foster put him in there like that whole scene where Biggs talks to, to Luke about the rebellion that's in the novel that was widely printed you know the the triple x novel uh, are you, have you seen the film Triple uh, X, uh, starring Vin Diesel and Asia Argento? Absolutely, yes, I have. The first of the the first of the Triple X trilogy, in which Vin Diesel as Xander Cage only appears in the first and upcoming third. Films. Which the the merchandising in Australia has the character posters, and for a second I thought Ruby Rose was going to be playing Triple X. Which hey, I would watch that movie. A- absolutely. <laughs> Quick side note, Vin Diesel is literally the only celebrity I follow on Instagram. <laughs> now, you don't even follow John Cena's weird Dadaist clip art shit? <laughs> no, but Aiden follows Brie Bella and reads me the captions on Brie Bella's uh, photos <laughs> every time there's a new one. If you've seen if you've seen Triple X, the opening of the movie is that like there's this James Bond looking guy who's like in a tuxedo, basically Roger Mooring his way around, but he goes to a Romstein concert and he gets killed. And that's why Samuel L. Jackson decides that they need a new kind of hero. Uh, Xander Cage, extreme sports athlete. He'll be the new secret agent for the Triple X program. The novel takes that like five minute opening scene and you learn that guy's name. Like you you get like the whole reason he's following that other dude and going into the Romstein concert. It's like, it's, I, I swear to God, it's like three chapters. It's like 15 <laughs> pages. And it's like, which is great because in a novel, like you really want to play up, like yeah, it's like a James. Bo- it's like I'm doing Ian Fleming for the opening of this book before I before I go before into the years. Yeah, yeah, like that shit is fascinating to me. All right. Well, I was going to say, we, we probably should wrap it up, but this has been amazing, Chris. Like, I actually, and this is pulling back the curtain a little bit. A couple of episodes ago, I did one where I was, in fact, interviewed, and I did, in fact, have you on my, like, my pie-in-the-sky guest list. I said, wouldn't it be great if Chris Sims came on the show? And, of course, because you're a champ, you responded to my email, and I'm so glad we got to do this. This was great. I mean, look, all you had to do was ask. <laughs> like, I, oh, no, no. Don't make me talk about myself for an hour. <laughs> the worst. I didn't even have to send you a box of Australian snacks again. <laughs> oh, listen, listen. You can get Tim Tams here now. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you can't get like the special flavors. You can get like regular ass Tim Tams. So mm-hmm. excited. So very excited. 
All right, great, man. Well, look, for people who may not know you and want to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Super easy. I have, like, the the website that was my blog for so many years, I finally went and just made it a landing page. The blog stuff is still there. Don't recommend you go reading any of it. It's all old nonsense. Bad. <laughs> Bad <laughs> stuff I wrote in my 20s. Uh, but it's it's the-isb.com. You can go there and there'll be more information about me. There'll be links to everything I do. You can buy my comics on Comicsology or Amazon just by going there. You can find all the podcasts, links to Comics Alliance, and some of the recurring columns that I've done. I did a, a big deep dive into the electric blue year, like when Superman was blue and had lightning powers for a year. Nobody ever talks about those, so I went and read all of them, and I'm actually really proud of kind of getting through them in a, like, with with a critical eye and I'm kind of doing the same thing now with the last five years of Sonic the Hedgehog comics oh wow and and being kind of mystified by them and how they work and how they don't make a lot of sense to me but that's some of the stuff you can find there it's the-isb.com and I'm I'm at the ISB on Twitter which I don't really use that much anymore okay great well thus ends this portion of the interview thanks once again Chris for coming on it has been fantastic Thanks once again to Chris Sims for his time. For this week's signature cocktail, I've made an adaptation of an adaptation. While Trader Vic did not create the Dr. Funk of Tahiti cocktail, he did create its adaptation, Dr. Funk's Son. I've created an adaptation of that, and since the second sequel always breaks with the naming convention, I'm calling it The Summer's Word. In a cocktail shaker full of crushed ice, combine two ounces of dark rum, half an ounce of lemon juice, a quarter ounce of lime juice, and a dash each of pineapple juice, grenadine, and simple syrup. Shake vigorously for 30 seconds and then strain into a glass. Add fresh ice and top with two ounces of club soda or sparkling water if you're feeling fancy. If you want the drink to look fantastic, pour it over the back of a spoon so you get a nice balance. Still using the spoon, float half an ounce of 151 proof rum on top. Alternatively, you can put the 151 rum into a squeezed lime half and float it on top. That way, you can set it on fire. Add a sprig of mint and garnish with a Batman if you have one handy. This drink is surprisingly overpowered but doesn't break the game and can turn water into blues. Just don't shit talk any boats. Enjoy! We interrupt this Carly Rae Jepsen to bring you a special cocktail report. Initially, when I asked Chris what flavors he wanted in his cocktails, he mentioned a strawberry and balsamic vinegar shrub that he was enjoying lately. This immediately put me in mind of a recipe that I had, but had never tried, involving charred strawberries and rhubarb tea liqueur. However, after a couple of minutes of searching, I realized I wasn't going to find rhubarb tea liqueur anywhere in Australia. So I went with the summer squirt. However, today I was idly looking up the rhubarb tea liqueur and I saw it was from a company called Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Now I had never had their rhubarb tea liqueur. However, thanks to my good friend, Olivia, 
I have had their root tea liqueur, which basically tastes like, you know, 80 proof root beer. And on this latest trip to America, I had picked up their snap liqueur, which is essentially an 80 proof liquid Liebkuchen, which is a German Christmas cookie. And then it hit me. What does Chris Sims love even more than Joe Deaver's Lone Wolf? Chris Sims loves Christmas. So, after some frantic after-work experiments, I present to you the Christmas Sims. Heat a non-stick skillet on the stove to a very high heat. Trim and have five or six strawberries. Then dry fry them in the pan so they're seared on all sides. Put them aside and let them cool. Put one and a half strawberries into the bottom of a Boston shaker with one ounce of simple syrup. Using the end of a rolling pin, a spoon, or a muddler, pulp the strawberries as best you can against the edges of the container. Add one ounce of botanical gin and three ounces of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction Snap Liqueur. Add ice, put the lid on the shaker, and shake vigorously for about 30 seconds. Strain over ice into a cocktail glass. Then top up with fresh club soda or seltzer water. Here's to good conversations, late night experiments, and seeing the back end of 2016. Enjoy! New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you want to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you'd like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as dollar a month or really as much as you want. Hey, that would be fantastic. There's even some cool rewards for you, like early access to episodes, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you want to support another way, you can head over to iTunes, give us a nice five-star rating, or review the show. I'll even read them out. Next week is part one of a two-part episode where I'll be talking to Rose Stein, one half of Branton Stein, the artistic duo behind... Princeless, Raven the Pirate Princess, and the upcoming Steve Rogers Captain America, and Champions, Monsters Unleashed, about animation and Disney movies. Join me, won't you? So I do actually, like normally I just start off and be like, oh, you know, what'd you do today? What'd you have for dinner? Whatever. But I do have a prepared question for you. Oh, okay. Because I have just mainlined the last two episodes of Xena Warrior Business because I realized I had the really old RSS feed. Right? So it was like only the first two. I'm like, oh, they must be taking a break. And then it's like, oh, it's episode four. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. So I listened to those in a row. Now, I know you're an action pack guy. Yes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. So this is a very important question Argo versus Comet the Super Horse. What? Like, in what, in what terms am I to interpret that? 
versus to be whatever I want it to be, or... Absolutely, whatever will, will get you the best answer. You could say just, you know, objectively better or worse, or you could go completely versus and say in a fight to the death. Honestly... Or actually, because they're, they're both heroic, it could be both attempting to, like, save someone or complete a heroic task. But that's the thing, is, like, Argo's not really... Like, Comet's a character, you know, in a way that Argo isn't. Because Argo's not... Because or, or, Argo's a horse, and, and Comet isn't. Comet's not a horse. Wait, wait, wait. I, I, should, I should clarify. I'm talking about Comet the horse from Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., oh, not Comet the Super Horse. I'm sorry. Like, I obviously just thought of Silver Age superheroes. Oh, the piece of trash that is that is Comet the Super Horse. <laughs> yeah. I, like, in, in that case, Argo. Argo wins. Because I remember Comet being a little more sassy. Comet was a little more yeah. disobedient, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Argo is a, is a trusty and loyal friend. That is true. Yeah, Argo's a trusty and loyal friend. Whereas Comet could be, yeah, a bit of a jerk. <laughs> Man, like, where, who's got that Briscoe County license? Like, how come that's not a dynamite, you know? You'd think, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> steampunk inventor genius western thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a coming thing, you know? Like, it's... <laughs> I, I haven't... I cannot I believe you just said that. That's <laughs> a deep cut. That's a deep cut. Uh, reverence for the three people out there who love Briscoe. But like, that's kids ask your parents what Briscoe County Junior was. <laughs> that's a. It's unsurprising that Briscoe County Junior wasn't a success, right? Right. But it's really weird that it's never come back in some form or another because it has like it's such a quirky show. Like in the way that there was supposed to be a a Pushing Daisies comic a couple years ago that never happened. I had somebody come in and want to add that to a pull list when I was working at the comic book store. Oh, wow. Which I quit in 2010. <laughs> and, and, and DC announced it, and they gave a plot for it. Like, it was going to be put out through, like, I, I think maybe even through Vertigo, but it was definitely DC. And, and it was around the time that they were doing, like, the Heroes graphic novel, which which apparently sold very, very well for them. In the way that Pushing Daisies was quirky, and and make no mistake, Pushing Daisies is a better show than Briscoe <laughs> County Jr. But there was so much weird quirkiness to Briscoe that it was kind of like proto-steampunk. And it was like, you know, like Bowler is a really interesting character. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic and also looks and sounds a lot like Booker T. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. That's um, that's the guy who was, uh, we, we, we lost him a couple years ago, but he was Shonuff in, oh, no. uh, in The Last Dragon, too. Oh, is that the same guy? Mm-hmm. Oh, same guy. wow. What was, what was his name? I want to, like, I keep going to Julius, and yet I think Julius Bowler was Bowler's What's name. What's his name, yeah. So let me see here. Briscoe right. County Jr. on the old IMDb. Uh, oh, there you go. Julius J. Carey III. Julius J. Carey III. Yeah, so I did have it right. I did have it right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one, and I really like Jack of All Trades mm-hmm. should, like, that should be. I mean, look, no one should pay for that license. No <laughs> no one should pay for the Jack of All Trades license. But if they can pick it up for a song, then then it's okay. <laughs> Yeah. If it's like if it's like lumped in with something like if you get like if you you pay the money for the Xena license and the Hercules license and they just throw in Jack of all trades and like Cleopatra twenty five twenty five uh, then someone <laughs> should absolutely do it but like that that should be brought back as like like a like a web comic. <laughs> like, well, I mean, look if we if we can have the crossover with Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China, then we can certainly have a Jack of all trades Briscoe County Junior crossover. Well, you know, there's like multiple 
uh, Army of Darkness Xena crossovers. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I knew that Army of Darkness crossed over with a lot of stuff, but I didn't realize yeah. it would cross over with Xena. Because the licenses are both held by Dynamite. Like, Army of Darkness was actually... Which, incidentally, is a separate license from Evil Dead. Oh, wow. Uh, and Evil Dead 2. It's a separate license. And I know this because Dynamite is publishing AOD, and a company called Space Goat Productions has the Evil Dead license. So there's an Evil Dead comic and an Army of Darkness comic that are unrelated to each other uh, and put out by different companies right now. That's some granular shit right there. Yeah, but, but like, <laughs> they've done... I think the first one that happened again like back in 2010 was about how ash obviously looks just like autolycus it's like no no comics you're exposing the business because like, it makes perfect sense because everybody in xena has a twin usually two or three descendants don't forget that yeah well, well there's there's three people in xena who look exactly like xena they're like lucy lawless plays three different roles oh yeah wasn't there the, the princess one where there's, it's like she couldn't fight and had to pretend there's princess diana Who's, a, who's like a, a princess. There's Meg, who's a, a barmaid. And then there's, of course, there's Xena. And they are all, like, they, they all appear in the same episode. Joxer is a triplet. Like, he has two <laughs> brothers that are also played by Ted Raimi. And, of course, Gabrielle's Cthulhu goddaughter, Hope, <laughs> is also played by Renee O'Connor. So that's before we get into the episode where they're all in the future. And play actors. Oh, man. What a mess. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's great. I love it. I love it. I'm so happy there is a podcast. That I can... <laughs> here's here's the thing. Aiden watches like Grey's Anatomy, and so we'll be watching like, like she wanted to rewatch like the whole series. So and you know I work from home, so she'll be watching it, and we'll be watching season one, and then like the new episode would come on, which is like season fourteen or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And she's like, yeah, this guy was killed in a plane crash. And so they renamed the hospital and that's her half sister. And that's her fake half sister. And that's like her <laughs> half sister. She didn't even know about. And they all live in the same house together. And I'm like, man, a lot of shows, like if they're around for 14 seasons, first of all, first of all, if you have a show that's around for 14 seasons, go to space. Season 14 <laughs> is in space. There is no reason to not do it. Like I said, like I said, the next season of Grey's Anatomy, they should just do the apocalypse. Like they should have zombies <laughs> or like fallout times or whatever. Grey's Astronomy. Because like it's been so long. Yeah, Grey's Astronomy. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but like, also, I feel like Xena gets to a place in six seasons, in two seasons, if we're being honest with each other, that other shows would take like. 10 to 11 seasons to get to like before things get that weird it's like look we know we've got you so we're, we're just gonna try shit we're throw stuff at the wall yeah. it's like <laughs> it's like they never it's they honest to god didn't know what was gonna be their last episode starting with episode three <laughs> like this might be our last one we better go for it which i love i love all those shows though dude like i i'm really mad in in the same way that like I'm obsessed with comics in that I when I moved I got rid of pretty much everything that I had in print that I could keep in digital form in paperback mm -hmm. uh anything that I could get in another format anything that I could get in something that someone cared about so now all I have is like two long boxes of like Al Hartley Spire comics and like obscure like 80s tie-in comics things that people don't have the licenses for because the license holders don't exist anymore like <laughs> that's the stuff I keep because that stuff is gone like that like you know that there's a t there's a ticking clock 
on on weird comics because nobody owns the rights to them. Nobody cares about them. Nobody's unless you're a very dedicated, specific like scanning group. And you know the Digital Comics Museum uh, does a lot of really great stuff because they are exclusively devoted to Golden Age public domain stuff. Where okay. it's exa- like the publishers don't exist anymore, or the the rights have uh, have gone away, or, or for whatever reason, like they're doing all that stuff. But like all the weird toy comics from the eighties, like those are <laughs> never going to get reprinted. And then I'm like that with like I really want that. I want to watch that Robin Hood show that came on <laughs> TNT after Monday Nitro in nineteen ninety seven. Yes, I can recall a few episodes of that. Like, in the height of, like, Xenomania, right? Like, because it's, it's one of those, like, there was a Sinbad show, there was a Robin Hood show. Yes. There was a Young Hercules show. Which, with Ryan Gosling, by the way. Yeah. If you didn't know he was... Who I knew from Breaker High, which I'm just saying, Chris, if you want to do another podcast, there is a Breaker High podcast waiting to happen. It's got Ryan Gosling as the weedy little nerd who can't get a date. Oh, <laughs> Sounds amazing, and it's it's the love boat with teens, basically. It's they're they're a school on a cruise ship. <laughs> oh man, I should watch that just to prepare for the cruise I'm going on in a couple weeks. Excellent. I'm sure it will be topical. All, none of your references will be missed. <laughs> Hero quest: deep inside another dimension, face battling barbarians and evil magic on a quest for adventure in a maze of monsters. This is Hero Quest, the fantasy adventure game where winning means mastering the arts of combat. I'll use my broadsword. And magic. Fire of wrath. Discover traps and enemies. Uncover secret doors. Once you get into it, you'll never be the same. Hero Quest. And uh, I'm actually, I've got an all Xena Warrior business weekend in that tomorrow morning I'm interviewing Allison. So. Oh, cool. Here's the secret about Allison. I don't know that much about Allison. Mm-hmm. So it's like every time we do an episode of Xena Warrior Business, I find out a new thing about her. So I'm very excited about listening to your show. Uh, well, her, see, on it. See, her and I bonded over Canadian television of the late 1990s. And, you know, talking about reboot and Beast Wars and stuff like that. And how there really should be a reboot business. Uh, much like I'm sure there, I'm sure I'll mention Breaker High, and she'll know what I mean too. Awesome. It was all that YTV stuff. Yeah, I'll fucking do reboot business. I fucking love some reboot, my dude. <laughs> and when it got all dark and shit, and and oh, Bob yeah. came, fucking season three of reboot is the fucking jam. Yep, and, and uh, but I love that the only character who gets to be the same is Frisket because Frisket is basically crypto. Yes, yes. <laughs> Frisket is the best. I made a really good reboot joke. Oh yes, let's hear it. I watched Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice this week. Oh, I am so angry about that movie. But yes, continue. So we were watching it, Aiden and I, and guess what? I hated it. (laughs) No shock there. Uh, And Aiden also hated it. Aiden Aiden yelled at me until she turned red while we were watching (laughs) that movie. I remember like the fucking fight starts where Superman and Batman fight each other. And I was like, this fight looks like shit. This is the one thing this movie has. And it's, and like, this is the promise of this movie is that we're going to see Batman fight Superman. And it's, it can't even do that right. And I'm watching, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this is the thing they sold this movie on, and it looks like fucking reboot. <laughs> it's and Bob versus Megabyte. <laughs> yeah. God, I, I wish it had the subtlety and nuance of Bob versus Megabyte. 
Actually, I was talking to Aiden after because she was tweeting some of this and, and, and tearing it apart. But what made me the most mad as a photographer, as a photographer who shoots Polaroid and film and all that stuff. First off, Jimmy Olsen and his fucking film Leica in a desert war zone. I'm like, OK, that's a $9,000 like collector's camera. That is, and he shoots film. And then when it pops open, when it's revealed as a spy, he's got a supermarket-ass 200 ISO Kodak yellow and black fucking film cartridge in there. And I'm like, what? Okay, you went to the Leica store and bought your $9,000 film Leica, and then you stopped at a Walgreens to buy film on the way to the airport? What the shit? And then... When those terrible Polaroids of, of Martha Kent being taken, and he throws them down and they're all blurry because it's meant to be traumatic. And I'm like, guys, guys, Polaroids are 800 ISO, and they always shoot with the flash. You can't blur a Polaroid like that if you tried. Like, if you on purpose said, I want a blurry Polaroid, I'm going to shake the camera like crazy. You'll get a bad one, but you won't get a blurry one. I promise. I know it's it's this very specific thing to be mad about. I was also mad at Jurassic World because the kid had a Diana Mini, which is like a clockwork camera, and it's whirring like a digital camera. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm so angry. Uh yeah. So yeah, thank you. Welcome to Lucas's get mad, get mad at film corner. Yeah, I mean, I was more uh, mad at the fact that it is a report a morally repugnant film. Well, there's that. But yeah. yes, the, the, all the the cameras like there's there's no end to its bad habits. <laughs> Quest.